Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right, this week we're in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Jude. Now, 1st John is actually anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. And 2nd and 3rd John are written by somebody called The Elder. But the language and style are similar to each other, and they're similar to John's gospel. Therefore, we assume John is the author. Now, by the time uh, John writes this letter, he's probably really old, and he's overseen house churches. Now, a house church is a label um, used to describe a group of Christians who regularly gather for worship in private homes. Sometimes they're part of a larger Christian body, like a ward or a stake, but their main worship happens in these small private home gatherings. And just for the record, we, we don't have wards and stakes back in the day here. But like I'm just saying, sometimes they're part of a larger city Christian community or something like that. Wards and stakes are a modern thing here. Anyways, but just so we can put it in our context. So John is most likely at this time supervising a bunch of churches in and around the city of Ephesus. But his supervision is very different from the unified hierarchy that you are used to seeing in your modern church. There is basically complete independence in these house churches from John. Some listen to him and some don't. So, Second John is a warning to a specific house church, which interesting to us as modern Latter-day Saints is led by a woman. His counsel to this church is pretty straightforward. Love one another, but at the same time, don't let anybody come preach in your house, church, that won't bring you to Jesus. Kind of the end. That's, that's most of Second John. Third John, basically all you need to know here, it's written to a guy named Gaius, who is apparently a leader of one of these house churches. And John is telling him that another church house leader is basically a butthead, and please don't act like him. <laughs> That's there, there's your whole summary of third John. So what about first John? Let, let's jump into this. First John is written uh, to these Christians near Ephesus, and it's kind of like a sacrament talk or a sermon, but it's written more poetically. It's written with poetic amplification, it's called. In other words, instead of being like Elder Oaks, point A, then point B, then point C, John takes a different approach, a very much more poetic approach. And John talks about common ideas of life, light, and love, and then uses hyperbole and contrast like these poetic tools to flesh out these ideas in kind of a cycle, right? So he starts First John much the same way that he starts his gospel. From the beginning, we proclaim the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, and we write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness of all at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, according to John, how we walk in this light is pretty simple. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. That's it. 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dear friends, let us love one another. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he loved us. But you know how we all botch it, right? Like we don't love like Jesus loves. We don't, we don't take this perfect light in us. And John goes on, but, so when you botch it, know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And that's that, like that's John's message. I mean, it's really simple. It's not anything you haven't heard 33 times already from Paul, but it is just this. Jesus is real. He really loves you. Loves you, in fact, so much that he died for you. Therefore, you are free, clear, redeemed. You can be hopeful. You should be hopeful. We are hopeful. And if you don't feel that way, then do the work to come to this fresh realization and live free. And once you feel free, go out and do some good. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the sum total of the gospel as preached by the apostles. I really feel like this is the essence of life. We're all trained to react to life with fear. So we try and control everything. We try and control other people, the weather. We try and control our children or outcomes. And it just cranks up our anxiety. The alternative as presented in the gospel of Jesus Christ is to trust Jesus Christ and ask, how can I live in love right now? Really, this is the only question. Will I react with fear and distortion or with truth and love? I'm here to tell you, love really is the only way. And I don't mean that in a cliche t-shirt slogan way. I know that comes off by that, but listen to me. How can I live in love today in your own circumstances? Not anybody else's preachiness or them trying to tell you how to do it. How can you express love today? How can you live in love with those around you? Nothing else really matters. Honestly, just get to that point and you will see it shapes everything. These are the the first commandments. It it carries everything. Love God and love your neighbor, Jesus says. It it says this even way back in the Old Testament. It is the essence of coming to, to be with God. Okay, you got me? You feel me? So that's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, right there. We got it. That's the message. Next, we have in the epistle of Jude. Now, Jude really is named Judah, if you go with the the Greek or the Hebrew. And Judah is one of Jesus's four half-brothers that are listed. We already talked about James, whose real name is Jacob. And there is also Simon and Joseph, and then Judah, who we're talking about. 
If you're wondering where we get the names of these half-brothers, go back and look at Mark chapter 6, verse 3, or Matthew 13, 55. Now, none of these four half-brothers followed Jesus while he was alive from what we can tell. But after his resurrection, they saw him, believed him, and followed him. James slash Jacob became the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Simon and Joseph, we don't really know about their ministry, but Jude, Judah here, he was known as a traveling teacher or preacher. Now, we don't know what church he is writing to in this epistle, but he, it seems like he's writing to Messianic Jews who have gone through a crisis, which doesn't really narrow it because it's basically most church members at the time. But anyways, he's writing to Messianic Jews. We assume this because the epistle, although it's short, is nonstop. It is just a nonstop onslaught of Hebrew scripture and secondary Hebrew literature. It is just all these deep cuts that he assumes these Messianic Jews would know. Now, Jude is concerned that this church, and we don't know where, is coming under the sway of teachers who are distorting the truth of Jesus Christ. So he goes deep dive Jewish on them and talks about a whole slew of famous Jewish failures. He quotes Numbers 14 with Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. First Enoch, and yes, that is Apocrypha, so a deep dive Jewish text here, with rebellious angels sleeping with women. Then he quotes Genesis 19 with the men of Sodom. He quotes the Testament of Moses. Again, not scripture, but really popular Jewish religious text about Satan arguing with an angel. He quotes Genesis 4 with Cain, Numbers 22 with Balaam, number 16 with Korah, and then he quotes Ezekiel 34, 2, Proverbs 25, 14, and Isaiah 25, 20, saying that these teachers are distorting the truth like selfish shepherds, clouds that don't bring rain and chaotic waters. Okay, so, so he's like, hey, your ancestors have failed in the past. This is prophesied by Old Testament scripture. And then he sums everything up um, with an old warning. Again, heavily quoting. He quotes Enoch 1, which in turn is quoting Deuteronomy 33, Zechariah 14, and Isaiah 66, which warns that the end is near. And now, since the end is near, he points to a new warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 7 and that is echoed by Paul in 1 Timothy 3, John in 1 John 4, and Peter in 2 Peter 2. Like all these warnings, he's just tying them all together here. And he's saying that corrupt teachers will come before the end and try to distort the good news. But he says the recipe is simple. Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And be merciful to those who doubt. The, okay, the, the message that there are people in the world who will try to take you away from peace, the peace that Jesus can provide, is not something really new. You're not like, oh, shocking, there's people trying to mess with me. But I want you to notice how Judah gives this message. He knows his audience and he speaks in a way that they will respond to. He goes super quote heavy. He goes super Old Testament, Jewish text, uh, Apocrypha, all these things that they know and love and they vibe with. And frankly, it probably doesn't do much for you 
because you're not his audience. But I think what he is doing can be a lesson in how to teach, how to bring people to Jesus. He is showing by action that we meet people on their level and then as we meet them on their level, then we take them to the next level. I I think this can be particularly powerful for our own children. Elder Ballard has given some really great counsel for how we can communicate with our children and for how children can communicate with parents. He says this, Elder Ballard, he says, Start by trusting your father and your mother. Your parents aren't perfect. And he, then he goes on to talk about the father here. He, he says, but think of it in context of heavenly, uh, of not heavenly, but of your mother and father. He's talking to children. He's like, he's not perfect, but he loves you. He would never do anything he didn't think was in your best interest. So talk to him. Share your thoughts and your feelings, your dreams and your fears. The more he knows about your life, the better chance he has to understand your concern and give you good counsel. Your dad wants more than anything for you to be happy and successful. So why would you not trust someone like that? Trust your dad. Second, take an interest in your father's life. Ask about his job, his interest, his goals. How did he decide to do the work he does? What was he like when he was your age? How did he meet your mother? And as you learn more about him, you may find that his experiences help you to better understand why he responds the way he does. Watch your dad. Watch how he treats your mother. Watch how he performs his church callings. Watch how he interacts with other people. You'll be surprised what you learn about him just by watching him and listening to him. Think about what you don't know about him and find out. Your love, admiration, and understanding will increase by what you learned. Be interested in your dad's life. Third, ask your dad for advice. Let's be honest. He's probably going to give you his advice whether you ask for it or not. But it works so much better when you ask. Ask for his advice on church activity, on classes, on friends, on school, on dating, on sports, on other hobbies. Ask for his counsel on your church assignments, on preparing for your mission, on decisions and choices you have to make. In my experience, fathers who, ask for, uh, fathers who are asked for advice try harder to give good, sound, and useful counsel. And then parents, fathers, listen to your sons. And this, again, mothers, daughters, uh, sons, daughter, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, it applies all around. Listen to your sons, really listen to them. Ask the right kind of questions and listen to what your sons have to say each time and you have a few minutes together. You need to know, not just guess, but to know what is going on in your son's life. Don't assume that you know how he feels just because you were once young. Your sons live in a very different world from the one in which you grew up. As they share with you what's going on, you will have to listen very carefully and without being judgmental in order to understand what they are thinking and experiencing. Second, pray with and for your sons. Give them priesthood blessings. Third, dare to have big talks with your sons. Um, he, he goes on and says, um, Daughters, love your mothers, my young sisters. Respect her, listen to her, trust her. She has your best interest at heart. She cares about your eternal safety and happiness, so be kind to her. Be patient with her imperfections. So there's Elder Ballard, Right? Um, 
here's what I'm saying based on Jude. Jude meets them where they're at and takes them to the next level. I'm saying with the Peter, people who matter most, take some time to get to know them. Then help them where they're at right now. If you do this, you will emulate God, who is love, who is genuine interest. You will find that your life feels more rich, more bountiful, more plentiful. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.